Hi there! You are about to listen to a vintage episode of the Under the Microscope podcast. While the content is still as relevant and as interesting as when it was recorded, our webpage has changed. You can now find us at thesciencetalk.com slash real-scientist-nano. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Meet the Curator. This series is brought to you by the Real Scientists Nano team. Our goal is to provide a platform where scientists can communicate their work and interact with the public. With that in mind, every week we introduce you to a scientist working in the field of materials and nanoscience, who would be curating the Real Sci underscore Nano Twitter account. Stay tuned to know more about this week's curator. Hi everyone, today we have with us Matthew Jarrell, who is an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. Hi Matthew, thank you for speaking to us. Hi there, and uh, thanks for having me. Really, really glad to be able to do it. Wonderful, let's begin. Um, let's start with how did you end up in your current research field? What's, what's your story? Yeah, so I uh, started out as an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and uh, I got right away as a sophomore uh, into a lab uh, working on superconductors. I was just uh, doing metallographic sample preparation and some basic SEM imaging of, of uh, materials for them. And, and I ended up staying with that through my undergraduate time and really just uh, started to enjoy more and more what I was doing as I kind of learned more about the field. So mm -hmm. I took what, at least in the U.S., is a pretty unconventional path. I stayed uh, at that institution, uh, continued working in that same research group. Um, into graduate school uh, with uh, David Arbelestier, who's, who's one of the uh, real foremost uh, superconducting materials researchers here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And um, I would have stayed and probably finished out my Ph.D. there at, at Madison, uh, except that with about two years left on my uh, timeline, our research group moved down to Tallahassee, Florida. And this was a big change for our group, but it was really uh, a wonderful move because it allowed us to interact with the National High Magnetic Field Lab which is down in, in Tallahassee. And they're very interested in using uh, superconductors, that's my area of research, to build bigger and better magnets for their user base. So I ended up doing two years there in Tallahassee. Uh, and then while in Tallahassee, got connected with this ITER project, which is a nuclear fusion reactor being built in the south of France. And this is a big international project. And at the time, they were having some challenges with their superconducting magnet conductors. And so our group got involved and I ended up doing a PhD thesis centered around um, how the superconducting materials for their system were made and what some of their unique uh, strengths and challenges and vulnerabilities were. Uh, okay. So then after, after my PhD, then I ended up uh, going to ITER, going to France and working there for two and a half or three years on a postdoc uh, in the magnet division and, and working on the magnet systems for that, uh, that fusion device. Uh, and then, uh, found my faculty position that I currently have uh, back here in, in Wisconsin. And so we came back to the U.S. then and, and uh, have been here since. Okay, wonderful. That sounds like a very, very interesting path. And you've had some experience abroad as well. I'm sure that must have been really exciting and you learned a lot. Uh, wonderful. So um, could, you, could you tell us um, where does your, the super interesting research, where does it fall in this big picture of materials and nanoscience? Where does it fit in the puzzle? 
Right. So when we talk about superconducting materials, there's a lot of different length scales, let's say, at which we are trying to answer different questions. So mm -hmm. some people in materials research for superconductors are focused on really the, the, the macro scale. How do I put wires together into some kind of cable or conductor? How do I integrate that into a magnet system? How do I insulate it? Um, how do I protect it against um, these disruptions we call quenches? Uh, other people are focused more at the micro or the nano scale. How do I do the heat treatments and other uh, processes that I'm going to need to actually form the superconducting phase in the material? Uh, how do I optimize the grain structure and even the nanostructure to make the material perform as, as well as it can? And here it's probably worth diving in just for a minute or two into one kind of detail that, that's important. So um, in a superconductor, a superconductor is kind of an interesting quantum state of matter. And, and in a superconductor, magnetic field lines are quantitized. So within the superconductor, most superconductors, so-called type two superconductors, um, magnetic field lines can penetrate the superconductor, but, but they're in these individual uh, quanta that we call uh, fluxons. And these, these flux lines, if they are allowed to move within the superconductor under the Lorentz forces that are sort of naturally present, uh, the, the magnetic field and the current conditions uh, lead to these, these mechanical forces on the flux lines, uh, if they move around, they're going to generate heat. So that's, that's very problematic for a superconductor. So uh, as materials engineers, we have to pin those flux lines. We have to fix them somehow in the material so they can't move around. And we do that through defect engineering. Like a lot of other areas of material science, we, we intentionally build in defects to the material to kind of grab and, and pin these, these uh, flux lines so that they uh, will be stable when we actually try and operate the material in real life. And so we can do that through defects like grain boundaries, through precipitates, uh, through other defects that we intentionally engineer into the structure. And so as you can imagine, that defect engineering can happen down really to the nanoscale uh, because these flux lines exist on the nanoscale. So, so all the way down at, at length scales of uh, 5 or 10 or 20 or 50 nanometers, we are trying to, trying to optimize the structure there. But then we also need a microstructure that is going to allow current to flow through some kind of, whether it's a filamentary structure or a tape type material. Um, we have mm -hmm. to optimize that level. And then, as I've already mentioned, we, of course, have to optimize the, the wire or the material at the, the macro level. So okay. there's really a, a variety of length scales there. And that's, that's pretty traditional material science, if you think about it, right? As, as materials engineers, we're, we're always used to thinking about how is the material behaving across different length scales. And this is, right. and for me, superconducting materials are just a nice example of that. We're having to be thinking about all these things simultaneously and how they fit together to get the ultimate performance that you want. Okay. All right. Yeah, that sounds that that sounds super interesting. Wow, that's wonderful. So it sounds it it uh, sounds to me that you have uh, you have done in the past a lot of interesting experiments, and you're also doing a lot of interesting projects at the moment. So if you had to pick one uh, project that you worked on or an experiment that you worked on, um, your favorite or the one you're most proud of. Could you could you pick one? I know it's a difficult question to pick one. Probably you have several favorite. Uh, just uh, take one and explain it to us in really simple words in the section we call in other words. Yes. So so indeed, as you say, of course, I, I love all my children equally. But but, uh, oh, but, but <laughs> probably the, the project I worked on that would have the most resonance maybe for people outside superconducting materials uh, was my time in France when I was working at uh, this project called ITER. So ITER is a very ambitious nuclear fusion project. It's trying to uh, 
um, make fusion energy commercially viable by demonstrating for the first time in human history that you can sustain a nuclear fusion reaction on the order of minutes and that that reaction can be net energy positive, that we can get out more energy from the reaction than we put in, including all the, the energy inputs, the heating of the plasma, the cooling of the magnet system, all, all the things that, that cost energy to get the fusion, the fusion reaction to go. And, and ITER is a particular style of nuclear fusion called magnetic confinement. It means that in order to make this plasma hot enough and energetic enough to cause the fusion reaction to occur, you have to superheat it to a point where you really can't hold it in a, in a bottle. There's no, there's no crucible you're going to put this plasma into um, uh, without kind of, kind of burning, your, burning your crucible. So instead, it's, it's magnetically confined. The plasma is literally levitated in this donut-shaped uh, device called the tokamak. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's levitated and sort of stirred uh, inside here, but it requires a very complicated magnet system, as you can imagine, to, to um, uh, uh, keep it in the shape and density that you need to allow the plasma to occur. So it's very sophisticated, first of all, very sophisticated to design to, uh, uh, for such a device, but then also very challenging to actually build these magnets and get them to do what we want. So mm -hmm. in this ITER project, there are three primary superconducting magnet systems, and I'll just, I'll name them briefly. They, the names aren't so critical for everyone, but there's the uh, toroidal field magnet system that actually goes around uh, the donut. There's the central solenoid, which sits in the middle and helps to drive and store the plasma. And then there are these so-called poloidal field coils, which, which help to uh, shape the plasma and, and keep it stable. So mm -hmm. each of those magnet systems uses superconductors to produce the very, very large magnetic fields that are needed for the device uh, without enormous uh, energy budget that would then no longer make the device net energy positive, since that, that's a main main goal of the project. Um, mm -hmm. So I helped work on those conductors, helping to design them, helping to design quality tests. I think one of the things that our team was most proud of there, this was the first time uh, ever that some of these superconductors, in particular one called Niobium-310, uh, first time that a Niobium-310 superconductor had ever been produced on the quantity of hundreds of tons. So we involved eight manufacturers around the world in this procurement. We had to get them all up to speed on the same kind of quality standards. They all had to ramp up their production. And uh, we ended up producing uh, 500 tons of Niobium 310 over a, quant over a period of something like uh, five years. And this was really a major accomplishment for, for superconductivity, uh, for superconducting materials, built out a lot of industrial capacity around the world that can now be used by other projects. So I think that was one, uh, one aspect of the project that we were really, we're really proud of. Okay. Well, that sounds like it's a symphony. So many things have to work together in such synchronized way. That's wonderful. Out of curiosity, what were the sizes? What were the dimensions of these magnets or these donut-shaped yeah, magnets a, that you mentioned? That's a yeah. great question. So the eater device itself uh, is going to stand, the, the entire structure is going to stand something like 60 meters tall. So it's an enormous, enormous structure. When you think about the actual kind of uh, size of the magnets, they're something like 10 meters tall. Um, so that's 30 feet here in the US. Um, so each, each of these magnets is several stories tall, weighs something like 300 tons with the, uh, the case cool. around it. And, and um, so there's several, uh, with the 18 troidal field magnets, you already have several thousand tons of magnet conductor plus structural material. Um, so really a massive, uh, massive project. In fact, here's just one interesting tidbit. 
the uh, location of this reactor in France uh, is inland, about an hour from the from the ocean. So there's a big question of how are we going to get some of these very, very large components, which are manufactured offsite and have to be delivered, how are we going to get them actually to the site of the reactor? And in the, right. early, days, in the early days, there were some kind of crazy ideas floated, like maybe we use a, a blimp or something like that to sort of float them <laughs> in. But, but, but in the end, these, these ideas were discarded, uh, and the, the French had to sort of plan and build an itinerary, a route where bridges were reinforced, power lines were taken down or buried, and they built sort of a... Uh, what in the U.S. we would call a crawler, sort of a, a device like uh, our NASA uses to move space shuttles out to the platform for launch, this kind of large okay. crawler device with, with many, many wheels, and it goes very mm -hmm. slowly, maybe 10 kilometers an hour, and uh, someone with a little remote control walks next to it, and uh, it takes two or three days from the from the port at Marseille to get inland to the to the reactor at Eater, and and uh, they, they bring these multi-hundred-ton magnet components up the uh, up the route that way. Wow, that I, I can understand now why you picked that as your favorite or or let's say not favorite. I mean, that's a very strong word, but one of the most interesting projects that you were involved with. That's that's wonderful. Awesome. I hope you can talk about that as well when you're curating the Twitter account. Some yes, pictures maybe to give like a small person standing next to this big piece of 60 stories tall or uh, something like that. Okay, wonderful. Um, Matthew, let's go a little bit into the other side of a, of a, of a academic researcher, so to say, uh, the teaching. Uh, do you teach? And if you do, which courses would you like to like to mention? Yeah, I teach a great deal. And in fact, this is something I'll also highlight uh, on the Twitter account a little bit uh, when I have it. Uh, here at Wisconsin Eau Claire, we are actually primarily a uh, teaching university. We, we are a so-called primarily undergraduate university. We have no mm -hmm. uh, graduate program in material science. All the research I do is with undergraduates, and that's quite okay. unusual. I think in the U.S. we may be the only one or possibly one of two universities in the country that has a material science engineering program um, that works exclusively with undergraduates. So that, mm -hmm. um, that produces some real uh, opportunities, and also from a research side, you can imagine some challenges, right? Um, mm -hmm. So we have to find projects that are a good fit and, and that work well for undergraduates, but also do things that are that are relevant for the field. Um, but you asked about mm -hmm. teaching. So, so yes, I do teach then uh, typically something like three classes a semester, um, mm -hmm. one or two lectures, and then typically a lab. Uh, a couple of classes that I'm teaching now and really enjoy, I teach a phase transformations class, which is sort of a physical mm -hmm. metallurgy course. So the basics of phase nucleation and growth, uh, kinetics mm -hmm. of Phase transformations, those sort of topics. I think that's a really important foundational course for students, and and I think really helps them to appreciate uh, the, the 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 breadth of things that you can do in material science, and also helps them appreciate how some basic engineering principles allow us to do a lot of design work, a lot of materials design, um, to get the things mm -hmm. we want out of materials. So I enjoy teaching that mm -hmm. course, and then also right now I teach our senior capstone course. So like like in many engineering disciplines uh, in the U.S., uh, senior students in their last year have to do some kind of independent uh, so-called capstone project where they work on a year-long research or engineering design project and they they uh, try and solve some kind of a question or a problem for an external client or a company mm -hmm. they work with or someone on campus here. And that's a really fun class to teach because students have to use a lot of creativity. 
have to think about kind of design maybe in, in new ways that they haven't thought about before and really helps to give them a good professional basis then for going out either to a graduate school or to uh, to get a job in a materials related industry. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that sounds like a very, very uh, well thought through program, which is a combination of everything and you try to equip the undergrads with as much practical and creative thinking as possible. This right. One, and one, app, one reason I've always enjoyed being part of material science, I think one reason I probably picked it as an undergraduate major is uh, material science is growing a lot right now in the U.S. Um, in, in the universities, but it's always been much smaller than, for example, mechanical engineering programs or electrical engineering programs. And I, I really enjoy that. I really enjoyed as a student having that more personal connection with my faculty members and being able to learn from some real you know, luminaries, but in but in kind of a smaller setting. And, mm. and uh, I really enjoy them the chance to do the same now for, for my students and having these upper level classes that are that are small and we, we can know everyone and, and work with them on a one on one basis. And, and yeah, that, that, that's a nice way to be able to do uh, university engineering education, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you completely. You're trying to enrich their early research experience as well. Um, speaking of which, um, I hope your experience, your research experience so far has been wonderful and it will continue to be amazing in the future as well. However, if you had three wishes to improve it, what would you ask for? And I'm not promising anything here. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think uh, in our sort of unique context as a undergraduate campus that's, that's trying to do a lot of still uh, helpful and good, good research work, uh, I think one thing would be um, uh, better or easier access to certain research facilities at larger institutions. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, we have a lot of good facilities here for doing materials work, but also sometimes we need specialized equipment that uh, uh, only exists at a larger university. And, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes there can be bureaucratic barriers, let's say, to, to making that happen. So there, there are times when I could wish for just easier facilitation of some of those collaborations. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I think, I think uh, it would be nice to see more federal research funding agencies in the U.S. follow the example and the model of the NSF, the National Science Foundation, in dedicating some portion of their research funding to primarily undergraduate institutions. So when NSF reviews research proposals, in certain disciplines at least, they have um, particular pieces of their of their research budget that are held for undergraduate institutions, and then the competition is just amongst those undergraduate institutions. And that really helps to create a really healthy research climate uh, at at some of these schools. In particular, chemistry does a good job with this at NSF of of um, uh, kind of reviewing grants um, against other chemistry institutions at similar size schools. And I think more more uh, more federal agencies could could follow that lead, and that'd be a really healthy and constructive thing, I think, for research in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you you asked for three, so I, I don't know. The other one, I think, I would just say the same thing that all of us would say: just uh, more more hours in the day, right? There's never there's never enough time to answer all the emails and do all the projects and prepare everything the way uh, I would like to for classes. So so uh, if, right. if you could wave the magic wand and just give us a few more a few more hours every day, that'd be great. <laughs> okay, now that we're talking about the hours. Um, how many hours uh, would be enough? Tell me, how many hours would you ask for? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I think that's, uh, I, I'm sure we would just fill it with uh, with, with uh, too many things as well. So hard, hard yeah. to say. Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> that, that's what I thought. I wish I could I could grant those wishes. I hope for the funding and uh, for the for the reducing the bureaucracy part, I hope we are w- moving towards the right direction, hopefully. 
uh, hopefully sir, the the federal uh, funding agency are listening to this podcast and they will take a note uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that um all right um let's let's go a bit into the fun part so what are you most looking forward to in the la- in the next three months other than christmas and new years of course uh so this year i have a new project which is just starting up and i'm very excited about it um mm-hmm. i have a small grant through the state of wisconsin to help manufacturers in wisconsin um, uh, those in the materials industries and, and manufacturing industries to better align themselves for so-called advanced energy production uh, uh, fields. So this this came out of my interest in fusion and and realization that now in addition to big government projects like ITER, we're also seeing in fusion several smaller privately funded efforts, uh, including being funded by some some pretty large and well-known venture capital firms. Uh, there there are projects in the U.S. and in the U.K. Um, that that are trying to produce fusion on a somewhat smaller scale and a more uh, faster commercialization path. Mm-hmm. And and that just got me thinking and realizing that that here in this part of the country, in the Midwest of the U.S., we have a lot of manufacturing capacity that, let's say, is, is structured or geared towards very traditional areas of manufacturing like automotive components and mm-hmm. uh, tooling and and um, uh, kind of, kind of uh, typical machining type type uh, uh, areas, but really future growth in some of these areas are going to be in things like uh, wind energy and solar energy and and uh, potentially even nuclear fusion. So uh, I'm trying to put together a survey of what are capabilities here in Wisconsin for manufacturers and how can some of those manufacturers better align their capabilities with with um, uh, manufacturing future manufacturing needs rather than maybe current or past manufacturing needs and this is being funded by a, a, a group out of uh, madison wisconsin called the tommy thompson center uh, tommy thompson was a former governor in wisconsin and the state legislature has has kind of endowed this this uh, uh, agency or group to to fund some of these initiatives that are kind of uh, forward-looking and helping Wisconsin to uh, uh, realign in, in certain ways. So I'm, that's something I'm looking forward to working on here in the next few months, and I think will be be uh, interesting and kind of kind of for me a new challenge too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we wish you uh, a lot of success and a lot of exciting experiments with the, within this project, and I hope everything works smoothly in a synchronized way, as you will be working with a bunch of uh, different stakeholders, so to say. Uh, good luck for that. Um, before we let you go, could you could you address or tell us about the big challenges or these big questions that the, the materials and nano community is working towards solving? Yeah, I I think um, I mean of course there are a lot of very interesting areas of materials research and nanomaterials research happening. I think what I'd like to highlight though is uh, I think there is a danger as we um, are becoming more and more specialized. And this this is maybe not new, but but uh, there is really a danger. I think that the materials community is is fracturing a little bit, just because of kind of over specialization. That that uh, there is not as many kind of common threads holding together uh, these very disparate um, research programs in biological materials, energy materials, uh, materials for computational things like like uh, quantum computing. And, and each of these, you know, is really kind of unique. And, and so the field the field is becoming kind of further and further, uh, I think, specialized that way. And there, there's obvious reasons for that and probably no turning that around exactly, but I think we should be more thoughtful as a materials community 
about about what that means and how we still kind of work together. Um, mm -hmm. And similarly, then how do we sort of you know integrate all these interdisciplinary approaches? As as an educator, we we want to train our students uh, to a level where they have some real skills in certain areas, but we also want them to have some breadth. We want them to understand how different uh, segments of the materials uh, community fit together. And, mm -hmm. and that gets more and more challenging as as various fields within materials get more and more specialized. So I think that's something that we really need to think through carefully uh, as as these very interesting areas move forward. Uh, how do we still teach and train students to to be able to um, operate effectively in, in all of them? Mm -hmm. So keep kind of the interdisciplinary aspect of the material science intact while specializing in, in certain niche fields, so to say. Yeah, just just balancing those balancing those needs. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's 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 a fair point. I had never thought about that. That's 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 correct. I agree with you on that. All right, Matthew. Thank you very much for speaking with us. It was lovely to speak with you and understand a bit of what your research has been and what your current research is. Uh, we hope you have fun on the Twitter channel and see yeah. you there. Thank you. Appreciate it. And I really look forward to uh, being able to put some of this out there via Twitter. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Next week's curator will be introduced in the 23rd episode, which will release on the 15th of December 2019. To know more about us, please visit our website, realscientistsnano.org, and follow us on Twitter at realsci_nano. underscore nano.